Hello, welcome to NG Meets. This is episode 24 and it's our last episode of 2019. And as you may be aware, the, the excellent Attenborough Nature Reserve at uh, in at obviously Attenborough, Nottinghamshire, is raising funds to help the Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust purchase the land the reserve sits on. They're looking to raise a million pound by the end of January. And to find out more about the campaign, I sat down with Erin McDade of Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust to talk about the campaign, Attenborough, its history and why it is so vitally important. Um, at the point I sat down with him, it was still quite early on in the campaign and they'd raised about £80,000, I think, then, which was a fantastic amount. Erin mentioned in the it mentions in the episode that they've actually got grant proposals in there to help them one of which was for three quarters of a million pound. And you may have seen in the last week or so that they actually won that grant uh, for £750,000, which is a huge amount and a great help. So looking at the site today, as of uh, as of today, they've raised over £880,000 towards the target. So it's going brilliantly well. But obviously, you know, every penny helps and they're still looking for more. So uh, after you've listened to the episode, if you would like to donate, if you head over to nottinghamshirewildlife.org slash lifeline appeal and support this great campaign. So moving on, as I say, this is the last episode of the year and this is with Erin McDade of Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust talking about Attenborough Nature Reserve. NG Meets. This evening I'm joined by Erin McDade, who is from uh, Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust. Uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Good evening. evening. And you've come in uh, primarily to talk about the, the Attenborough Nature Reserve campaign. Uh, yeah, well, Attenborough Nature Reserve, I'm sure many people are aware of the reserve. It is our best known site. Um, what people probably aren't aware of is it, it's actually the, the, the site that provided the spark um, for the creation of the Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust uh, back in the 1960s. So it's a site that's very, very much part of the, of the charity's DNA, as well as being an important site in its own right. Excellent. And uh, obviously what the campaign is about is raising funds. I think a lot of people probably wouldn't have realised is that the actual reserve itself is uh, still owned by the aggregates company that were down there. Yeah, it's quite a quirk and it, and it, and it all dates back to that really exciting period in the 1960s when um, Naturalist Trust, Trust for Nature Conservation conservation groups was, were establishing all across the UK and Nottinghamshire was very much part of that. Um, and the Attenborough site at that point was known as the Grabs or Attenborough Gravel Pits uh, and it was, it was entirely part of uh, the working gravel pit complex which had started back in the 1920s um, and at that point when they were building the uh, Radcliffe on power station uh, there was a plan to actually fill in the lagoons which had become home to a whole range of ducks and other water birds uh, with ash from the, from the power station um, and even then local people already 
held the reserve in very high regard and decided that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and that campaign to save the gravel pits eventually sort of morphed into uh, the formation of the Wildlife Trust. Uh, and then so in 1963, the Wildlife Trust was formed as the Nottinghamshire Trust for Nature Conservation, uh, very much a volunteer-led body. Uh, and then in 1966, an agreement was struck with the then owners of the site, uh, which I think was Attenborough Gravels, um, to actually create a nature reserve on site. It's a short-term agreement, um, but that short-term agreement has been extended and, and morphed into a variety of arrangements with different gravel companies down the years uh, until we come to the present day where the site is, is owned by Semex UK. Uh, we've been working with them since 2005. But as you say, most people nowadays only see the nature reserve. They don't realise it's part of a much bigger complex which stretches right into Derbyshire uh, and with the processing plant in the village at Attenborough. Um, but all the processing ceased back in 2016. And since then we've been talking to Semex about well, what, what's the long-term future for the site. They knew we always wanted to acquire the site um, and we've just been negotiating how that might happen. Uh, and then early this year we actually uh, agreed to purchase the site from Semex uh, and that's what led us to launch the appeal very recently to try and raise a million pounds to buy the site and to invest in its future. That's fascinating that and it's, it's quite interesting there to think how, how close we possibly came to, to not having that nature reserve I guess. I mean for me it's as someone that's grown up that side of Nottinghamshire it's always been there you know it's the place that my parents and grandparents taught me in schools went and so it's it's as ingrained as as well, I guess what a similar way to Wollerton is in anyone, particularly, particularly from that sort of side of Nottinghamshire. I think that's it. I think people are often sort of taking it for granted. I don't mean that in a negative way. They've just sort of it's always been there in their in their mind. It's very much part of the local psyche. I'm from north of the city. I'm from Arnold, but it's the only site of the wildlife trust that I was aware of growing up. My parents used to drive over right to the other side of the city, go for a walk round, and then parents would uh, drop me in the the car park of the Blue Bell with a, a bottle of pot with a paper straw and a bag of crisps. Um, but yeah, Attenborough, so we used to visit Attenborough as well. So it is just very much part of, of that, that, that scene of people from Nottingham and surrounds who want to get out into, into nature and have a wander around, see the wildlife. Um, and it is interesting that it all goes back to the 1960s. I think what that sort of story suggests to me is that even then people were aware of its value. And I think that's all about its location because there are gravel pits throughout the Trent Valley and also across the rest of the UK that were infilled with ash from the power stations it became a very standard practice but I think the difference is that right from uh, the 1940s late 1940s there'd been a lot of recording uh, bird surveys and things done at Attenborough so there was already a body of evidence local people that only knew from so their own enjoyment and seeing the birds they were actually recording the birds and sending them into to the British Trust for Ornithology so some of the survey work at Attenborough predates the actual national surveys so uh, there's, a, there's a survey called Webbs uh, the Wetland Bird Survey uh, which dates back um, to the 1940s but actually the first year of recording at Attenborough was done the year before the official survey started so I think that recording history uh, and the fact that it's on people's doorsteps meant that yeah. when this proposal came forward people were able to say, well, not only do we not want it, we don't want this to happen because we know all this wildlife's here. So it sort of really underlines that importance of having having the scientific knowledge to, to back your campaigns and you're trying to save a site. Knowing what's there yeah. gives you a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of ammunition. It is, and it's, it's incredible, I think, personally, to have something like that in the middle, effectively, of, you know, an urban area. Yeah. Such And, and it is um, misleadingly huge, I think. I think a lot of people think of Attenborough and think of you know the wonderful centre that's, that's been there now for 
about 15, coming up for 15 years, and, and that's, you know, the love yeah. centre. But you can walk around that area, and I'm a cyclist as well, so I cycle around there a lot. And there's so much of it and so much to see, and obviously you've got the little, you know, the bird trails, and I know that the houses with, or the, the viewing points were damaged recently, unfortunately, but it's, and it's such a wide-ranging amount of sort of land as well. Yeah, well, sometimes it's a bit of a victim of its own success and it can get quite busy, particularly yeah. after the sunny sort of winter. Most of our busiest days in the year are always in the winter, actually. <laughs> so sort of sunny winter Sundays are absolutely, you know, the place can be a bit a bit heaving. Um, but people say, oh, I don't go down so often because it's too busy. And I say, well, which bits do you go to? As you say, because yeah. there's, there's plenty of quiet corners, even on a busy day, particularly if you head off towards uh, the Erewash well, the area known as Erewash Field, if you head off sort of behind the centre almost, the big loop there, and or head down the riverside, um, it's not always not always as busy. Yeah, yeah the, the main track down Barton Lane to the river uh, towards yeah. the main hides is very, very busy, but certainly out uh, towards the Delta Hyde uh, and the areas beyond the village, you know, they're a lot quieter. Um, so, yeah, you can still get peace and tranquility on site even on, even on a busy day. Uh, but as you say, most people don't explore all of the site. No. Uh, it's great because it's so close to so many people that people have got their own favourite bits. Many people come in through Beaston Marina or even through Trent Lock. Um, and you mentioned the centre. I remember being there a good few years ago, but the centre, I think it was the 10th anniversary of the centre, um, and we were just we had some information around other bits of the reserve, and we were chatting to a family that visit the reserve every week and had done for years. But because they come in along the Trent, they had no idea, no idea there was a centre, you know, because they they come into the reserve along the riverside and and go to the, the far reaches of the reserve, but weren't coming back towards back towards Chilwell. So yeah, it's sort of a it's a different experience for many different people. Yeah, that's true because you you can walk if you walk if you follow the river along. From say you know coming in from the marina, you can walk all the way down to sort of Trent Lock, uh, Sawley Marina that way, and yeah, you wouldn't know no, that's right. any of that going back off the yeah. the main pathway along the river. That's weird, <laughs> but like you say, and that was one of the wonders of it. There's so much to explore. So in terms of the actual site, yeah. how what how, what area there does that is actually the part of the reserve because obviously you go on and you've got the marina and you go the other way you've yeah. got the locks and things so how much does the actual reserve yeah there is there is still got to sort of uh, the reserve covers about two hundred hectares so it's quite a sizable site it's not not actually our biggest site in Nottinghamshire we've, we've we've got one on the north of the county which is nearly three times the size into, at the Idle Valley um, but it uh, yeah it stretches sort of through to beyond Meadow Lane um, the, there's a it doesn't go as far as Beeston Beeston Marina. There's a there's a there's an information panel. There's a sign panel between between the beyond that last bridge. There's the bridge that's currently closed down. Then there's another section of path. Then there's the Delta Hyde, which is just off the Riverside Path. And then there's another small section of the reserve. And then you'll then there's another sign which sort of gets you to the boundary of the reserve. And then then you walk on to Beeston Marina. And the same. It doesn't it doesn't extend um, much beyond. Uh, Barton Lane going in the other direction, okay. certainly on the riverside. Um, it does behind the centre, um, but uh, not not so much along the riverside out towards Trent Lock. But um, I, the, the map on the on the Facebook page or on the website yeah. makes it pretty clear. But say two hundred hectares is a, is a sizable sizable yeah. piece of land, and I think people don't always realise the, the variety of habitats as well, because obviously we've got the open water, uh, which is where all the most the ducks and the grebes and the, swans that people go to see are on um, but the areas closer to the village um, where the reserve sort of grew out from effectively um, where the the, wash, the old washing plant used to be in the village and the, the, the series of streams the washery streams where they wash the sand and gravel 
those streams actually flowed out into the river. That's really how the reserve started to form. Um, so you've got all those areas of, of silt and sand and sediment uh, and then the mix of islands and channels. Uh, but that area of the woodland uh, closer to the old processing plant, which we call the delta area, for those very reasons. It's a, it was a bit like a, a sort of traditional river delta in miniature. Um, but that's now quite established woodland, but all of that was just bare sand and, and silt from the washing plant. And now you've got you know mature woodland, and it's, one, it's a really exciting area of woodland, which has all grown up on the old uh, sand and gravel washings. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the deep lagoons and the yeah. islands, which have been left from the actual sand and gravel extraction itself. But then over the decades, as they worked out from Attenborough Village uh, through what we now know as the nature reserve, the sand and gravel extraction then started to take place further north and then over into the Derbyshire border. Yeah. Uh, and then just at the end of the, 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 the working quarry's life, all the sand and gravel was being brought from Derbyshire, but then brought through the reserve on the barges, which people used to sit in the cafe until you know just a few years ago and watch the barges go through. And yeah. I think sometimes people didn't actually think about what, what was on the barges, whereas <laughs> actually it's all part of that process, uh, which has shaped the nature reserve. But then obviously with the foresight of the, the volunteers, um, of the, the organisation which then eventually became the Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust, uh, had to work hand in glove with the quarry uh, operators right from the 1960s. It's why we've got such a fabulous site today. Because the, the rules have changed very significantly. A lot of people are saying to us, well, why are you in this position? Why are you having to buy the site? How come it's not already coming to you? I think that's because nowadays, when minerals plans are submitted, uh, the rules are much stricter. Um, uh, and all of the the long-term plan and the aftercare of the site has to be agreed yeah. at the outset. Um, gravel extraction at Amber started in 1929. It was a very different, uh, a very different world and a, yeah. very, a very different sort of planning system. Um, so uh, Amber, in a way, is quite an old-fashioned and traditional uh, gravel extraction site, um, which is why we are where we are in, the, in that the uh, the quarry has come to the end of its useful life, and now they're looking to this, you know. For it to have its, you know, its its next chapter as we're talking about. But yeah, if this was a, a brand new site being proposed today, what happens 20, 30, 40 years hence would be much clearer uh, than it was for Attenborough. So, so a lot of those things were left open in the old in the old days, yes. uh, which is why we ended up with an agreement and, and have worked alongside a, say, a succession of companies, whether that be Semex, RMC, uh, Butterley Aggregates, Attenborough Gravels, you know, there's a whole number of, of, of companies down the years. Uh, but it's always been a very productive partnership uh, and hopefully that next stage will mean that we can actually take the site into our care because then we will actually be in full control of what happens on the nature reserve. It will make it easier in the future for us to generate income and investment for the management because um, although um, We've got a lease for the nature centre and the car park area, which has meant we've been able to access some grant funding in the past. We can't actually access a lot of grants for the nature reserve because we don't own it. Right, and obviously okay. grant funders aren't, aren't willing to hand over money to the Wildlife Trust when we don't have any legal land, tenure yeah. on the actual land. So, so getting investment in the nature reserve has been quite difficult over the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Um, traditionally, we've done a lot of that work sort of bit by bit with the support of our members and volunteers, whereas on other sites we've been able to access quite large sums of money to invest in the landscape scale, habitat work. We haven't been able to do that at Attenborough. Uh, the only work we were able to, to do was linked to when we built the centre. We were able to get a small amount of money uh, at that time to invest 
uh, in the area where we built the, the, the elevated hide, which has become yeah. so popular and gives all the great the great, uh, the great views over the reed beds. And then a few years ago, we had another uh, slug of lottery funding, which was mainly for our outreach work and our community engagement work. But as part of that, in terms of improving the experience for visitors, we were able to create a wonderful San Martin hide. Uh, but beyond that, as I say, getting investment in the actual infrastructure of the nature reserve has been quite difficult because you know we don't we don't own it, and in future that will be uh, easier. But that's also why we've set ourselves the target of raising the million pounds because we don't just want to be able to buy it and scrape over the line in buying it. We actually want to be able to confidently you know plan for the future yeah. of the site it's a big responsibility taking on a site as complex and as large as Attenborough um, because at the moment you know if, talking to somebody last week you know if something had happened in the flooding for example um, at the moment there's somebody we could ring up and say oh, there's a problem <laughs> there's a problem with that bridge yeah. or you know but uh, but once we take it on then all of those things fall to the trust so you know it's only responsible of us to actually to, to want to build that that pot of funding so we can actually invest in the site for the future. Yeah, yeah, this is a long-term strategy. It's not Absolutely. just about getting some land. And as you say, the benefits there in terms of opening up funding and, and control of the land as well. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, listening to the to you talk about the sort of partnership. I think a lot of people might be surprised at how successful, because uh, big corporations like that aren't particularly renowned for, you know, Great partnerships in terms of conservation, particularly if you go back, um, you know, forty or even more. You took, you know, going back to the sixties. I know, you know, now there's much bigger emphasis put on companies being a bit more responsible, and there's a more importantly to them, there is a benefit to it, money wise and yep. income wise. But back then, I don't, that wasn't, as you say, it was a different world in terms of how these kind of places were treated. I think it's remarkable, and it's remarkable that that group of people had that foresight to get, you know, to get in there and protect that, you know, protect that site. Yeah, to get that agreement. As I say, yeah. nowadays you say there's things like corporate social responsibility, and and, and companies as you highlight may, may may see a benefit of being seen to be environmentally friendly, or certainly you know delivering on that. Um, yeah, we've had a, it's been a really interesting relationship. There's no there's no question that there are challenges in that sort of relationship, yeah. um, and certainly down the years um, because we we. We're involved in the minerals planning process. You know, we comment on planning applications, and you know, we've occasionally been a thorn in the side of, of the various operating companies when they've wanted to do further extraction or whatever. So we've always had to make sure that um, our first and foremost priority is getting the right deal for the wildlife of the site. Um, so we have been very, very true to our principles on that. But as you say, partnership is actually very important, and we'd always had one eye on the the long term future of the site. Um, but it's interesting because we're working with a number of companies across the county, or have done over the last few years. Um, and then up in the north of the county, we're working on a massive restoration uh, of, a, of another sand and gravel quarry, um, where we've been working directly with that company um, for the last seven, eight, ten years, actually almost basically designing the, the, the landscaping programme for that site um, because it has that detailed master plan. So we sort of we, we know exactly what the habitats are going to be on that yeah. site years before they actually happen. We weren't able to do that in the same way at Attenborough and a lot more of the work was done very piecemeal by volunteers in those early days, diverting the, the gravel washing channels. I remember back in 2000 when we created the reed beds, I remember going with all the volunteers and the staff and bagging up sand from the quarry works, uh, filling sandbags um, to create the, uh, the, the, the to 
cut the rhizomes actually we were filling sandbags with the rhizomes of of reeds that were growing okay. nearer nearer to the quarry and then we actually planted those in front of the where the high hide is now to create the sort of the, the finger uh, islands of the uh, of the reed bed so a lot more of it was say very hands-on and very piecemeal uh, but to think there are people volunteering with the trust today who physically helped to shape that nature reserve over 50 years ago either as as teenagers or, or you know or, or even even older children um, with their parents and their families coming down and planting trees, pulling up willow, probably spent more time pulling up willow <laughs> than planting trees, but yeah, planting the reed beds, helping to shape the islands. Um, and those people have kept an association with the site, and I think that's one of the things that makes Attenborough really special, is we have this, this, this group of people who have been helping to physically shape it for over five decades, best part of 60 years, and who also, a number of them have gone on to shape um, other people's views of nature as well, you know, being involved in our education program or just sharing their knowledge as bird, as bird watchers. Um, obviously, we have close links with other groups like the Nottinghamshire Bird Watchers, and there's there was always the Attenborough Bird Club. So there's been a lot of sort of passing on of that, that handing on of that passion for wildlife and that baton, and sort of to the, to the next generation. And uh, you know, we've got people now in their fifties and sixties. Um, and, and older at Attenborough that have been involved say, since their since their early teens, and that's to work around those people yeah. is really inspiring. Um, I'm very lucky to have worked with a lot of those people for many many years, um, but to be able to draw on that knowledge, but also those stories. Uh, and I've, I've been looking back at some of our old annual reports recently, and looking at reports of you know 300 people coming to help out on the nature reserve back in the 1960s. You know, it's it's, it's always had a very special place in local people's hearts, and that that passion is physically reflected in how the landscape looks today because those people came along yeah. and altered how, how it developed, you know, and so, so, so they've literally helped shape it, a lot of people who live locally. I think that's it, and I think that's what gives it that, the heart of what makes Attenborough Nature Reserve something so special. It, like you say, it's, it is the community's nature reserve. You, you know, the community built it, the community protected it, and still love using it, and I've been and trying. Uh, hopefully, now we're going to help um, secure it. In trying to get future. some some national publicity for the campaign, we're trying to talk to uh, colleagues and talk to people who are sort of briefing national journalists, and um, they were sort of wanting to know, you know, you know, what's the key species? What's the rarest species? Is it your largest nature reserve? Um, the sort of the traditional things that might make it stand out as a national story. And I, I sounded a bit like a broken record over the last few weeks, saying. It's not what Amber is about. What Amber is about is that connection with people. Um, it is the fact that you know you approach it through uh, a retail park and then the back end of an yeah. industrial estate, <laughs> past the sewage, past the water treatment works, over the railway crossing, past the derelict house. You know, and then you know, if you look to the back of you, you've got all the big warehousing uh, and the railway line, and it's not you know it's not the most uh, attractive of settings but then when you look towards the river i think that's when you know it gives people that opportunity to support all everything that's behind them that sort of modern you, urban life is behind you them you do and, know when you're going from one to the yeah, other and it's a, right, it is a really yeah. massive transition but it's it's not the most prepossessing of approaches as you drive onto the nature yeah, reserve although if you if you forgo your car yeah of course you can like i mean there's a lovely little walk if you come to Attenborough village past the church yeah so like and all obviously along the river, but yeah, as you say, it's it's a very strange, um, sort of switch, isn't it? Like you say, because retail park is about an urban as urban an area as you can get, yeah. and obviously straight across the train line, and then you're in, you feel like you're in a 
a different part of the country almost. Yeah, and we've, we've had that over the last couple of winters with the, the experience people have been having of the, of the starling murmurations. Um, the, the murmuration at Attenborough isn't big on a, on a, on a, on a national scale. You know, there, are, there are many sites across the UK with far more starlings than we've got at Attenborough. But the difference is, um, because of the great team we've got at Attenborough, we, we keep people informed as to what time they've been performing, whereabouts they are in their natures. Last winter we even put signs out trying to direct people where to stand. Um, but it, a lot of people have never experienced a starling murmuration, no. but they can go to Attenborough and you know, walk, you know, maybe a mile, you know, half a mile, depending where they are, depending where they come into the reserve. Last year, a lot of people were coming in from the Beeson Marina end because that's where the starlings were murmurating. And then, you know, together with maybe 100 people, experience this wonderful natural spectacle, which they've never had a chance to see before, um, you know, without leaving town, you know, without having to go into Yorkshire or yeah. to drive to Norfolk or, or down to down to somewhere like the uh, the Somerset levels where you sort of, you know, you would expect to experience wildlife. The fact that you can experience wildlife on your doorstep and Attenborough, you know, comes out top in poles or when they say, you know, great places to see things like Kingfisher uh, and the number of people that go to Attenborough to sort of to hand feed the robins. You know, there, there are just wonderful wildlife experiences you can have, you know, right on the doorstep, you know, right here in Nottingham. And I think, I guess, uh, improvements in sort of, in photography and things of that have helped that because now i mean some of the photographs you see from the <clears throat> excuse me the, the sterling murmurations or or just you know the river at uh, dusk yeah. are incredible yeah. and it immediately look at that and go i wish i was down there and then you think it's not that far away it's not like someone's put up a picture of you know the, in the norfolk broads where you've got to walk miles some, something like instagram obviously uh I, I, I used to we used to use Flickr, uh, the photo sharing platform, a lot with 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 work. It's still it's still popular, but uh, not not so popular nowadays with things like Instagram. But when we used to use Flickr a lot, to, to uh, I've never found a nature reserve with as many people sharing pictures of it. And there are there are there are, you know, there are nature reserves with a higher profile, but again, I think because it's on the doorstep of Nottingham and Derby. There are so many people using it as their place where they go and take photographs, and then they're sharing those photographs. Uh, and now, if you look at the number of sort of tags on Instagram, you know it, it's, a, it's a hugely popular site. Um, you know, we're very lucky. You know, I, when I first joined the trust, we used to we used to buy photographs in wildlife photographs in. We used to buy I used to, I don't know how long I've been there. We used to buy we used to buy slides, thirty five mil slides <laughs> for, for then reproduction in our magazines and things. Um, we haven't bought a wildlife picture in many many years. You know, we, we most of the pictures we use uh, are of wildlife in Nottinghamshire and more often than not because of the wonderful local photographers that we've got connections with we're often able to put a picture in of the particular bird on a particular nature reserve so you know if we want to promote the kingfishers at Attenborough we use pictures of kingfishers taken at Attenborough because so many people taking such amazing photographs and similarly with our Idle Valley site in the north of the county where you know, we've got people taking pictures of some quite wonderful birds that years ago you would have had to go to maybe Norfolk to see but now you can see them on your doorstep and that's that's one of the other legacies that sort of is connected with Attenborough is that we have all this sand and gravel that's been deposited in the Trent Valley in the last ice age um, but here in Nottinghamshire a lot of those sites have now been turned into wonderful nature reserves, wonderful bird watching sites. There's our sites, there's Attenborough, the Skylarks, 
Bestlop when you get to Newark. Um, and then next door to, to our Bestlop site at Newark, you've got RSPB's Langford Lowfields, our Idle Valley site in the north of the county. But then you've also got wonderful places at Girton and Hoveringham. And, you know, the, these gravel pit sites are a real yeah. part of the Nottinghamshire landscape. Um, and I think they have been taken for granted to some extent over the last 20 or 30 years, but now they're really coming into their own. As they mature, they're actually providing some really top quality wildlife watching experiences, um, particularly where reed beds are developing. And there are a whole raft of species, things like bitten, things like water rail, uh, things like bearded tip, which you would have had to go to, to places like Norfolk to see 20 years ago. You can now see them here in Nottinghamshire. Uh, you know, and increasingly a number of them can be seen at Attenborough, particularly things like the bitterns, which we often get booming through the winter. Yeah. Uh, they did breed three or four years ago, not had them back sadly to breed, but you know, a whole load of new reed beds have gone in with a lot of the work we've done with the Environment Agency. Uh, you know, hopefully the reed bed, the area of reed bed at Attenborough will, will, will increase over the next five or ten years, you know, and hopefully we'll get bitterns breeding on it on a more regular basis. like as well that there's a new sort of or there's a there's a sort of build up of people just wanting to to have a place like that to go to i think maybe it's the fact that everything at the moment just seems so busy and rushed and it a lot of the time it feels like you can't get away from anything unless you go everything you know technology and things have made you never really escape the day-to-day But somewhere like that, you you do feel like you've got away from it a bit. And I feel like people, you know, are, gra- are grabbing that again in a way that maybe they've not done for a long time. Yeah, we've, for many years, we, we've, we've sort of grappled with the difficulties that, you know, nature is under threat, wildlife <coughs> is under threat. That we, we, are, we, are in, we are in the midst of, you know, an ecological crisis, yeah. a climate crisis. Um, but at the Wildlife Trust, we've always tried to celebrate wildlife. We've always tried to focus on the positives. I think we're realising that we do need to be a little clearer with people that actually, you know, we do need to take action now. But we are here to celebrate and, 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 and sort of shout about the wildlife we've got left. Um, Attenborough and sites like it are a really good example of how we can actually put nature into recovery. But for too long, um, we've had to try and focus on hanging on to what we've got, yeah. um, hanging on to every last bit of wildflower meadow hanging on to our last remaining ancient woodlands um and we're losing that battle you know we're losing those those ancient traditional habitats whereas places like attenborough where we've created new habitat habitat that's far richer than what was there before um does show that we can actually um go the other way you know we can actually create new spaces for nature we can create new spaces where wildlife can thrive um, and that's going to become increasingly important over the next 10 20 years um, and as some of those sites actually mature um, particularly through the Trent Valley uh, it's quite interesting that you know a deposit of sand and gravel um, that was laid down in the last ice age has now given rise to habitats which might actually become much more important in the face of climate change because yeah. if we get the sort of coastal uh, 
sea level rises that, that many are predicting, a lot of the areas at the coast, a lot of those reed bed areas and those traditional wetland habitats might actually become uh, inundated. So you could find that habitats uh, within the Trent Valley, uh, places in Nottingham, places around Newark, could actually become much more important in 20 or 30 years' time um, for a whole range of those species that rely on that sort of habitat. So that's quite ironic that, you know, sort of... <laughs> A, a, a natural mineral deposit linked to the Ice Age, you know, sort of, uh, which then has been utilised in the twentieth, yeah. right through the twentieth century, to transform our our sort of urban and, and industrial landscape, has now given rise to to these wonderful man-made uh, or man sort of man-assisted uh, habitats, um, which Mother Nature has sort of taken to, you know, with open, you know, with open arms. Uh, and now they're, they're havens for wildlife, but as you say, really havens for people. And people do need those spaces to connect. They need those spaces to switch off. Um, and actually, you know, we are part of nature. And I think for, for many years, we were perhaps seeing people, groups like ourselves were seen as especially interest group, oh, they're the wildlife people. And it's like, no, we're not the wildlife people. And we're not a wildlife charity. I've always viewed as, as, a, as, as a very much a people charity. We're people protecting wildlife. Um, but we're protecting wildlife for people as well as its own sake and that's always been the case we've always understood the value of nature to people um, now it's scientifically being recognized that, that, that we yeah. absolutely need that connection for our, our well-being and our mental health we've just always known that intrinsically that's just common sense yeah. to us but it is very useful to have that validation, to have that scientific background. I don't think most people need to see those reports to actually know no. that, that wildlife does them good, being out in nature does them good. But it's very handy when we're talking to decision makers, when we're looking at securing future investment and changes in legislation, to be able to say, look, this is actually scientifically proven that people need access to spaces. You can't just keep building on every last bit of green space. You know, you can't, when you're rebuilding urban areas, build right up to the, the edge of every single development plot. Yeah. We've got to build in that green space. And the importance of having them in <clears throat> in areas like Attenborough, yeah. in the middle of urban areas, and not just where, where people will just think, oh, it's too far to go. So, and then they don't go. And as you say, this it's recognised the benefits and the importance of, of nature and wildlife to people's well-being that's and a, mental that's health. That's a really important point. So to have it in an, in such an accessible area yeah. and um, and so open and obviously, accept, you know, is so important and it's important we keep things like that, places uh, like that. At Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust, we've, we've always had very much a focus on, on protecting wildlife where people live. Um, but some very passionate... Um, one of our uh, executive vice presidents, our former chairman, Tom Huggan, is actually the city's green space champion. But that's always been his mantra is that, you know, and he's not being dismissive, but it's like, where's the point in saving a, a rare orchid that's in the middle of nowhere that nobody can see if you're not also protecting yeah. that site with an oak tree where people can actually see it from their, their garden or their school or their, or their, or their, or their bedroom window? Um, so, yeah, he's not saying we shouldn't protect the rare uh, and the beautiful that's in the, the, the rural landscape. But we shouldn't protect those at the exclusion no. of, of those wildlife habitats near to where people live. Even if those habitats don't necessarily have that same mix of species from a scientific point of view. Um, so yeah, that, that's always been something that's been very, very, very clear to us at Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust that yeah, we need to protect the special and the rare, but we also need to protect what's close to where people live and special to people. Indeed, and when you talk, we talk about from an, an ecological sense, and as we say, 
Um, and we've covered this on numerous episodes of this podcast, the fact that we're in the midst of uh, an ecological crisis. And one of the important things I think personally as well about spaces like that is when we're looking to encourage people to take up walking or cycling, the fact that that, that side of Nottingham, you can get, you can go down to Atchipo, you can go then go pretty much all the way into Nottingham city centre along either open space, river, canal side, through the, um, you know, through the nature reserve and get right down to, to Sawley and Long Eaton. I think it's so important because a lot of people, and me as well, are put off by cycling on roads because they're quite scary and quite yeah. intimidating. And, you know, that side of Nottingham is quite well provisioned for cycling, but other parts aren't. And again, and that ability to go out and get away from it and have a, have a, a stress-free cycle or a stress-free walk without worrying about busy roads and things like that is, I think, again, is only going to encourage people to be more active and it, and to, to well, get a, get away from the cars. Well, obviously, Atten was you know, on, the bank, on the banks of the River Trent yeah. and everyone associates with being on the banks of the Trent, but a lot of people perhaps don't realise that obviously the River Arrowwash actually flows out through the nature reserve and then out into the River Trent. So it is actually at the confluence of, of the two rivers. Yeah. And it and it really does act as that gateway out back into the Arrowwash Valley Trail as well. So there's all yeah. of those sites, as you say, along the canal, heading all across uh, Broxtow uh, and, and up the Arrowwash. Um, so a wonderful network of, uh, of you know of quite rural, you know, quite rural landscapes um, that are very directly connected into the urban area. So you can really, you know, from, from Attenborough, you can really explore that whole side uh, of the county, that whole western area of the county along the Arrowwash Valley Trail, which is a really underused resource in, in yeah, my view. I'm, you know, it's connected to some wonderful sites, yeah. some really, you know, some some post-industrial heritage and landscape as well as the nature sites but uh, yeah it's a lot of it unexplored um, and uh, so people sort of forget that the River Arrowwash um, technically flows through the nature reserve. Um, it's one of the things that obviously we're looking at at the moment with with, with the, the site owners is the final bits of restoration to the site as it moves from being a, a former gravel pit to being a, a permanent yeah. and, and, and solely a nature reserve. Um, so eventually the river, the, the, the river Arrowwash will actually, the banks of the river will actually get re- reinstated um, because they were breached to allow the barge traffic to flow okay. through the nature reserve. So people have sort of forgotten um, that in the lagoon where the nature, where the nature centre actually sits, you know, the, the, the the river Arrowwash should flow through there as a, <laughs> as, a, as something that looks like a river. Obviously, if you know the reserve well, you go beyond the yeah. centre. You do then pick up at, at the other side of the lake. The river Arrowwash flows back as a as a river channel. But at the moment, you can't actually see where the river comes into the nature yeah. reserve because it just flows into the big open yeah. the big open lagoon. So so there will be some physical changes uh, that take place over the next the next next couple of years on on site. Um, quite exciting, um, and it's just it's just great to be. Having been involved with the trust for so long, and being involved in the, the, the discussions around Attenborough for so long, um, to finally be sort of making those long-term plans for you know for what's next, you know that sort of that next chapter in the site's history. Interesting. And talking about the climate as well, obviously, what impact did the the recent uh, terrible downfalls have? Because I know lots of areas around that kind of the paths and things got flooded. You know, the you know the weir wasn't far off. So oh, the, the weir was spectacular, wasn't it? <coughs> it was I, great I, I, to look I, I, at, but it was a bit, <coughs> bit scary. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. I know some of the paths along there, obviously, 
uh, flooded, which obviously then has an impact on the site because it becomes inaccessible. Yeah, quite a lot of the paths were, were inaccessible, particularly uh, on sort of village side. All the access from the village was, was cut off. Uh, it obviously gets worse when the flood wall that runs through the village along the edge of the nature yeah. reserve gets closed because then we be some, become, become part of the sort of sacrificial area and then the water does seem to back up uh, significantly. So we had, we had periods when um, if you wanted to get to the nature centre from the car park you'd have had to put your wellies on. Um, the actual uh, the area that the centre sits on was, was high, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. affected uh, and the drawbridge wasn't affected. Um, for those of you that, that haven't been, we've got we've got an electric drawbridge. It was the first drawbridge to be installed in Nottinghamshire in about three hundred years wow. when, we, when we created it. Um, but the the, the the concrete walkway up to the drawbridge was actually under about three inches yeah. of water, so people were having to paddle uh, to get to uh, to get to the centre. Um, but the main path down to the river uh, was okay, and the riverside path was okay. But many of the paths that yeah. path networked on the reserve were actually underwater. Um, some great pictures, again, you talk about people photographing the reserve, but great pictures of swans, you know, sort of gliding along, gliding along what are normally footpaths. Yeah. <laughs> so nature soon soon colonised different bits yeah. of the reserve. They would normally be waddling along and they were actually paddling down the paths. <laughs> Um, but it's like people, most people are aware, you know, we are in the floodplain, um, yeah. we're very close to the river. I think there is, there, you know, it, is it is scary, the, the water started then over one of the weekends, did start to come up quite close around the centre, uh, particularly over one of the weekends, once all the flood defences were, were closed off. Um, uh, I think, from memory, I think the centre's built on a one, you know, on a one in a hundred flood level, but as we're seeing with, you know, with changes in the weather patterns that you know what was once you know a one in a hundred event yeah, seemed to be happening a lot yeah. more frequently so it can be quite scary at times being sat that close to the river uh, and just upstream of the weir um, you know when you've seen all that rain on the weather forecast falling across Derbyshire and Staffordshire because yeah. um, I think people tend to think about the rain here obviously I work in the city and I remember a couple of weeks ago when we had all that really heavy rain in the city and then when it stopped I remember watching the forecast and it said oh Things are going to be fine in Nottingham now because the weather, you know, there's not going to be any more rain for a couple of days. It's like, well, hold on, what about all the rain upstream? Yeah, <laughs> it might it might have stopped raining here, but it's the rain that's been uh, falling further up the Trent yes. and, the, and in the uh, in in the Derwent catchment and the, and the Duff catchment, which all then closed down. So, yeah, yeah we, I think we do have to recognise that we are part of that natural environment and we impact on that natural environment. And I think we have to realise that you know that, that we've got to change the way in which we manage. Um, some of the systems, you know, we can't just keep trying to control nature. Yeah. I think for too long, a lot of flood defences have been focused on heavy engineering solutions, which obviously have their place. But now, thankfully, people are starting to look at more coherent uh, flood defences, including much more upstream uh, and sort of uh, work in the uplands, you know, working with landowners, working with farmers, looking at more forestry and actually trying to hold as much of the water on the land for as long as possible rather than trying to corral and uh, direct it when it's raging through uh, through our urban areas. Interesting. You mentioned, when you mentioned the swans there, I think one of my favourite things about being down at Ambrough is is watching people trying to deal with the swans when because when they just take themselves up onto the bridge and kind of they're just like am I, and you can see people kind of like sort of thinking around it because obviously swans have got a bit of a reputation i don't know how much of it is earned and how much of it is hyped up in the media <coughs> but it is i mean and i mean one of the great things about Edinburgh when i was a kid and with my own kids now is the feeding the the yep. ducks and swans down, and now obviously you do it. When I was a kid, the, the centre wasn't there. Yeah. But now you've got that whole sort of 
bank around the centre, and obviously the centre provides. You can purchase the seeds corn, yeah, the, the, corn, the, 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 the ever important duck corn. But yeah, and, and it's so great on a nice day seeing people. Obviously, the picnic benches are full, and people feeding the ducks, running away with a sandwich when the swan decides it wants that and things. That's it's, right, it is. It is. It's one of them. It's, it's one of the five ways. Five minutes down the road, people connect directly connect with nature. Yeah. You say that either you know losing the whole bag of duck corn in one go, <laughs> yeah, as the swan it's... just rips it out of the child's hand or or a nervous parent's hand for that matter, or when they, if they're holding the bag behind them and they don't realise there's two swans eating out the bag behind them, you do see some really interesting sights. Yeah. Um, but of course, we didn't have the sensor uh, until. Uh, 2005, of course. Um, but when I joined the trust, uh, even in, in the 1990s, you know, we did have the caravan, the caravan in, yeah. in the car park at the other yeah, end of the village end. And uh, as building up to this campaign, we'd be looking back at some old photographs, you know, and right back into the 1980s and into the 1970s, there was the caravan. Um, and then there's a really great picture. There's a story. Um, uh, there was a there was a rare bird. I think it was a black tern, but um, uh, uh, I could be very easily corrected on that. But there was a bird that was nesting on site, and the the local wardens and volunteers were mounting a sort of around the clock vigil to try and protect this bird. It, it was really unusual and hadn't nested on the site before. So they were, the focus was to try and protect the eggs. But there's a slide in our archive which I think really sums up the work of the trust because this caravan at that stage had been put there as a sort of action centre control point for this really important watch this you know this this wildlife protection activity but on the back of the caravan was a poster advertising a guided walk and a barbecue um, <laughs> and i just think that really sums up the work we've always done at Attenborough. it's been that balancing protecting wildlife uh, and educating people about wildlife but then actually making it possible for people yeah. to come see and enjoy wildlife. And I just love that photograph. It's just really, really evocative of the 1960s. And it's just like, yeah, this was a really important wildlife protection uh, activity. But, you know, somebody thought, oh, that's a great place. To, let's, let's promote our next <laughs> activity. But, but right from day one, um, again, looking at the archive, um, right from day one, the volunteers had a stated ambition of creating a nature reserve second to none in the UK. And I just think that's... For a group of volunteers to have that vision and ambition in the 1960s is just really what's led us to where we are today, to having a nature reserve that we're hugely proud of, and which, thankfully, since we launched the campaign, that people are, you know, are demonstrating um, their, with their generosity how much they're behind us. So it's great that you know we knew that Attenborough was well regarded, but it's just great to see that actually coming forward in the shape yeah. of, the, of, the, of the donations and the level of donations. Um, but I say it partly all goes back to that early vision foresight of those volunteers who were passionate about protecting the site, but even then wanted people to come and see, enjoy, learn about. They always wanted schools to visit. They always wanted local groups to be involved. And I think that, that that's, I think that's evident now in how, how we manage the site today. Excellent. And obviously the campaigns are going, and one of the biggest, obviously, supporters of of the nature reserve itself and the campaign is obviously Sir David Attenborough, yeah. who is the figurehead for wildlife and nature. Yeah. And despite what I have seen in some reports, it isn't named after him. No, <laughs> the village. Um, yeah. I think there's a, there's a suggestion his family name comes yeah. from the village because obviously they these parents I think uh, lived, they had a shop in Stapleford a long time back, uh, and he's he, he opened the. The centre, yeah. and he's—I mean, I can see him on the yeah, the leaflet here, his, and he's his, a his big connect, supporter. Of, his connection, his yeah. connection with the site goes right back to uh, the nineteen sixties, 
Um, again, that group of volunteers obviously just had something about them. They had a real drive. Um, and they decided to invite this man off the telly called Mr Attenborough, um, who had done some wildlife programming, but certainly wasn't the figure that he is now. Um, he was controller of BBC yeah. Two at the time, so he was, he was more an executive at that point, but he had the right name. Um, so they invited him to open it, and uh, he told a great story when he came to open the came back to open the Nature Centre in 2005, that, you know, at the time, his secretary thought that the reserve was named after him, and he decided it would, no. do, it would, do, it would do, him, do his reputation no harm at all to let her continue to think that. Um, but then he also told a story um, about how he became aware of the village of Attenborough. Uh, he was on a, uh, an unsupervised school trip as a, as a young boy, I think about 11, uh, on the train from Leicester where he grew up, coming, I think, to Nottingham Castle, I think he said. Um, and then he just recounted the story. He said the train stopped and the guard shouted Attenborough, and young David Attenborough stood up and said, yes, sir, because um, <laughs> he thought he was being shouted. But that's when he found out there was a place called Attenborough, and at, and at some point later on he looked into it and established that, yeah, he's, I think it's whichever way around it is, but yeah, he's either mum's from Stapleford um, and father from Long Eaton or, or vice versa. His grandfather was born nearby. They do take the family name from the village. So very, very strong local connections, uh, and that's why he's always maintained a, an interest in how we're doing. Um, we've been talking to him for a number of years now about when we get to the point when we're able to move forward, would you be able to, to back us? And he said, absolutely, you know, let me know what you want me to do. And that's how, how, how he's supporting us now with a, a wonderful statement of support uh, and the video which many people have been watching over the last few days. Um, but it's been great because the, the Lifeline Appeal, um, the, the whole name for the Atmore Nature Reserve Lifeline Appeal, comes from a quote by Sir David um, about 15 years ago, and he actually described the site as a lifeline to the natural oh. world. Um, that was how, that's how he viewed Attenborough. And again, it's back to that proximity to the city, proximity yeah. to where people live. And you know, even those years ago, he was viewing that as being its real importance. That's really what Attenborough's all about. Um, but it's interesting, I was reading a piece in The uh, in the Guardian by Patrick Barkham a few a few weeks ago, and he'd sort of put Attenborough on a sort of a, an interesting path, and he'd sort of, he'd hinted that that invitation to open our nature reserve in the 1960s was potentially um, Sir David's first ever sort of appointment in that sort of role as a sort of an ambassador for wildlife. Um, I'd like to think it was. That, you know, yeah. you know, we could say we launched, we launched that bit of his career maybe. Um, but it is interesting because even when he came back in 2005, obviously at that point his, his wildlife programmes were very popular. He was a huge figure. Um, but nothing on the scale that he is it's now. National treasure. He's now, now he's a national yeah. treasure, international yeah. icon, and, and hugely popular and, uh, and and resonates with young people. And I think that has that's happened since he came back in 2005. Um, I think very much then he was a very respected wildlife documentary maker. It wasn't until a little later on with things like Blue Planet where he started to speak out on the environmental issues, whereas previously... Yes. I think you stated the saying, you know, he'd very much let the programmes do the talking before. And then, like many of us in the sector, you know, it, it, it obviously became apparent to him that the programmes needed to be more direct and he needed to be more direct, uh, which is when he started speaking out on issues like climate change. And now he really is a, a, sort of a global icon. So to have his backing now is just, it's just making all the difference. I mean, he, he recently gave a talk at uh, the UN event or something, which is, I mean, staggering. Yeah. I mean, this is a man who yeah. is and to, and to be able to bounce up, and to be able to bounce still, up at that bouncer around Glastonbury and, you know. Putting him in and telling yeah. him and all. He yeah. was, you know, it was, I've seen it and it was, he wasn't messing about. No, it, you know, no. he was making sure these people knew and he's, He's been out this week criticising uh, 
Prime Minister for not taking part in the climate debate. So for him to so, found the time to actually to, yes, to, to record the video for us is really, really, you know, we, we're really appreciative of that. And I it just shows his, his passion for the site. I was going to say, it shows. I mean, this is a, you know, this is a, a person that has visited every nature yeah. area in the world. And yet he, and he's happily point you know, point yeah. out a little, you know, yeah. in, in that scale, a little reserve yeah. in a little village. That's on the outskirts of Nottinghamshire, and, 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 that, highlight, and highlighting because that it's they're just as important as yeah. anywhere else. Yeah, and so and we're very proud of that link, and you know, hopefully, you know, if we can get this over the, if we can get this over the over the line, if we can raise the money and we can buy the site, that might be enough to tempt him back. You know, yeah. to, he is a hugely busy man, as you say, and he's yes. massively in demand all across the globe. Um, but yeah, we'd like to think if we can, if we can protect the site permanently then you know we might be able to tempt him back to uh, to come and say hello Excellent. again and obviously this is a, a huge undertaking there is you know a, mi a million pounds needs to be raised and i understand by the end of january is the target so a short quite a short time frame with christmas smack bang in yeah, the middle of give, it i can give some re i can give some reassurance there um, essentially where we are obviously a bit of a glib parallel but if you imagine if you'd gone to look around a house and you decide you wanted to buy it you sort of say to the owners, you know, we, we'd like to buy the house. You then have to go away and make sure you've got your mortgage sorted yep. out, got your finances sorted out. Essentially, where we are is we've agreed with Semex that we want to buy the site. They want to sell the site to us. That was all agreed some while ago. We've obviously been working on major fundraising plans over the summer. Uh, we've submitted a lot uh, of bids to grant-making trusts, including a, a very large bid um, to uh for about 750,000 from the, the Landfill Communities Fund. So we're not looking to try and raise that whole million pounds from the public yeah, element okay, of yeah. the appeal. Um, the two month the two month time frame that comes from that's our own time frame. There's no there's no sort of Damocles hanging over the nature reserve in January at the end of January. What we've said is we want people to respond before the end of January to give us that confidence to get on with it. So yeah. essentially what we're trying to do is to get the majority of the funding together as quickly as we can so that we can proceed. Um, so really that's about giving the Wildlife Trust the confidence to move forward. Um, but no, we're certainly not trying to raise that whole million pounds in, 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 a, in a couple of months from a standing start. No. We've done a lot of work, as you can expect, a lot of work behind the scenes, a lot of very detailed grant applications have gone in, which we're hoping to hear about very, very soon. Um, and hopefully that, combined with the tremendous public support we've had, um, you know, sort of to raise £80,000 from the public and our supporters in the first week, absolutely staggering yeah. uh, and again just shows the, uh, the the strength of feeling for the reserve so we're very humbled by that response um, and hopefully that combined with our, our our efforts on the grant making trust side and we're talking to our corporate supporters as well uh, and we've had a number of donations from companies over the last few days as well as some very very generous individual donations so yeah, together we think we can think we can you know confidently move forward but it is important just, just to reiterate that that million pounds is for us to buy this site and invest in its future yeah excellent and therefore obviously um perhaps the most important part of this entire discussion is if people do want to donate where do they go to do it yeah we've made it very very simple i think the best thing to do is just to go straight to our website which is nottinghamshirewildlife.org uh, and then you can't miss it at the moment yeah uh, there obviously there's a whole range of forward slashes and things that i could give you it's clearly on all of our facebook pages and everything but if you go to our website it's all laid out there for you including the video from sir david so yeah just nottinghamshirewildlife.org excellent thank you and just before i wrap up then i'm just going to say if there was a sort of uh I don't know, one one sentence to describe 
what you know out of Grenada Reserve means to you, what would it be? Um, for me, it is a place where I see people of all ages actually just connecting with nature. Uh, and I think as a society, a lot of people, we've lost that connection. So every time I go and I see families either simply feeding the ducks or um, you know, even children, you know, families with children on bikes, just being out in nature, it just, it just, it just, it just makes me smile. It just, it really heartens me that people are actually wanting to and able to connect with nature, and that's something we want to go on supporting, you know, for generations to come. Definitely brilliant, and I, I think it's very unlikely there'll be many people listening to this that don't know uh, Attenborough Nature Reserve, but if there is anyone, I. I mean, I can't recommend it any higher. Really, check. You know, you will not. You will love it if you go down there. Yeah, I, um, I, I, check out the centre and also uh, check out because they they do a lot of stuff down there as well. I mean, even with Christmas coming up, I believe they've got like wreath making um, classes. They have kid things. They do walks around there. There's groups that do walks and trails and things. Yeah, and there's, there's even uh, like a tiny tots bulb. That's right. Yeah, the, we, 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 that's right. We do. We do sessions for very young children. We do. We do. We do birthday parties. We do. There's buggy walks. Um, same. We now do a lot of courses. Things like you know beginners bird watching courses. Yeah. Because a lot of people they don't feel perhaps they have the knowledge um, to get the most out of the site. So we do regular guided walks. We do the, the more sort of detailed courses as well. Um, but lots of stuff for families to do as well. So it's 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 a great place for people of all ages. There you go. Brilliant. And I think that's a perfect moment to wrap up. So thank you very much for joining us. And good luck with the campaign. Thanks very much. So there you have it. Thank you very much to Erin McDade for taking the time out to join us. A fascinating look back there at the history of Attenborough Nature Reserve and how important it is for all of us. And uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode, the £750,000 grant proposal that was mentioned in the episode, they were awarded. The campaign currently stands at over £880,000. So it's looking great. It's fantastic. I'm a massive fan of Attenborough Nature Reserve as someone that lives so close to it and it's well worth getting down to. It's such a wonderful place and it's brilliant to think that it will be uh, safe in the hands of the people that have looked after it for so many years and it will be looked after in generations to come. Uh, as ever, thanks to uh, Cafe Sobar for hosting us. As always, they've been great. Thank you so much for listening. As I said, that's us done now. We'll be back in... Uh, 2020 with more episodes do get in touch with us though we'd love to hear more about what you think to the show who you'd like to hear on the show we've got some great guests lined up uh, that we're talking to and some that are already sort of penciled in provisionally but we're always welcome for more guests please let us know what you think to the show subscribe to it Uh, give us a review as you can you can find us on you know itunes podbean Spotify and whatever podcast app you use. All of the episodes, all past episodes, including all the ones done this year, are available at ngdigital.podbean.com. 
And if you want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash NG Digital. Or you can follow us on Twitter at NG Digital UK. Uh, and next year, I think we're going to be pushing out a bit more uh, on, on Instagram and things like that. But keep in touch with that. We've got some big plans for next year that we're working on at the moment. We'll hopefully announce soon some uh, taking the podcast to the next level and things. So do follow us on social media to keep to be first to the news on that. As ever, though, thanks a lot for listening. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to our episodes this year. Please spread the word, get more people listening. And if you can back the uh, Attenborough Lifeline campaign, please do. Thank you very much. Have a fantastic Christmas and a wonderful year, new year. And we'll see you in 2020. Goodbye.